The Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab number 251 for Monday, March 22nd, 2010. To the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab number 251. I am Dave Hamilton, here from Durham, New Hampshire. Yes, I'm home. I made it home from my South by Southwest travels. And uh, we're here on the other end of the Skype line, as always. John Efron here, Fairfield, Connecticut. And let us not forget, on Violet the other end. Yeah, I'm here with Dave. Right. Two, that's <laughs> like two shows in a row. Well, almost, almost two shows in a row. Two studio recorded shows in yeah. a row. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So we are in the studio. I, I was just mentioning to the guys that we have had no, we recorded a, a very long pre-show today. We had a great political debate. And then, of course, we talked through the, the agenda very, very briefly. But uh, but we had absolutely no Firewire audio issues to speak of during the uh, pre-show. So we'll get them all nice, now. Nice. You just cursed it. Yep. That's right. That's right. Uh, I, 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 know, I know the solution here. And it is to buy a USB audio interface, even though on paper that's not the right answer. It uh, it clearly is in the in the Mac audio world because huh. despite the fact that firewire is audio of uh, firewire is apple standard they uh they simply have not been able to make it work reliably with uh with the mm-hmm. mac I, I i don't know it's crazy but anyway uh we've all heard enough about that yes shall we uh let's dive right into the questions i know we've got all kinds of things you get some tips i probably have a couple more things from uh from south by southwest to share but uh but let's uh let's let's dive right in and Answer Thomas's question. Thomas writes, Hello, Dave and John. My airport, for some reason, will change from my network to another unlocked network by itself, usually after I put it to sleep and I wake up in the morning. Uh, When I wake up, it will be on another network. It just started doing this itself a few days ago. How do I fix it? All right, John, I I think you uh, I think you've I think you're ready on this one. I think I got it. Um, So where I would look is I would go to system preferences. Network, uh, you're going to have your airport selected, and then there'll be an advanced button. So you want to click on that advanced button. And I'm going to bet this is what's happening. Um, if you look uh, on the leftmost uh, tab in that uh, dialog, it'll be called airport. And then there's going to be a list of preferred networks. Um, I'm going to wager that the. How much? November- how much? Come on, come on, come on. How much are you going to wager? <laughs> <laughs> steak dinner baby <laughs> steak dinner good I'm eating I'm, I'm going to guess that um, the remember networks this computer has joined is checked um, I would uncheck that and I'm also going to bet that in preferred networks there's going to be that errant base station that uh, you don't like so here's what I would suggest I would uncheck remember networks this computer has joined I would whack everything in the preferred networks and then I would only add your network. And because uh, I think what's happening is that it, there, for some reason, it's got that that one every now and then you connect to. I'm, I'm going to get I'm, I'm guessing that's towards the top, if not on the top of the list for whatever reason, I guess that these get added in the order they've been joined. Yep. So, so that's my guess. Now, I, I've had something happening, Dave, which uh, I can't quite figure out yet. And I'm still diagnosing it every once in a blue moon when I turn on my machine and I have my primary uh, airport base at the very top of that list, every once in a great while, it'll come up and not find it. And it will not connect to anything that's a backup. And I'm trying to figure if it's interference or what's going on here. I, it, it's inconclusive, but I have had one or two cases 
where my machine does not connect. And I know the base is there because, I mean, there are other devices in my house that connect to that, and it is available. So I'm, if I type it in manually, the, then it connects just fine. So I, I don't know why I'm not. All right. Uh, why that's I, happening. I have comments on your issue. I also have comments on, uh, on, on Thomas's. So I'll start with Thomas. So, yeah, as you, as you said, John, the, if you go into the airport uh, section or airport section of the network section of system preferences, uh, you will see that list uh, of those base stations or airport networks to which it has connected. And that list is prioritized. So whatever is at the top of that list is the base station to which it will connect. Uh, you can drag things around in that list to reorder them so that you could uh, you could put, say, your list. Let's say you did want to leave your neighbor's network out there or if, let's say your neighbor's network is called something very common like Linksys. And you know that when you go to your buddy's house, he's got a network named Linksys. So you don't want to remove it from the list. You just want to make sure your network is prioritized over that one. So uh, you could leave it out there and and move it up to the move yours up to the top. And in theory, it should pick that network uh, over all others, assuming it sees it. Now, to to your issue here, John, I've seen something like this here at my airport extreme that I have over at the house has been um it's been a little flaky. And sometimes even though there are other devices connected to it, it won't let new devices connect without me actually cycling power uh, on the airport extreme itself. I don't know. I don't know why this happens. It's it, interestingly, uh, I think I'd seen it before, but it certainly seemed to the frequency of it increased after my daughter got her mini 10 V. Uh, which does connect to that base station. So I don't know if there's something about, you know, the, the wireless circuit in that that's doing something a little funky, uh, but I'm not, I'm not quite, I'm not sure what, what exactly it is, but, uh, but yeah, there's something, something weird out there. Pete, you said yeah. you, you've got something to well, add. I was here. just, yeah, I was just going to add, you know, John said whack the networks and, and you kind of covered it saying you may, you may want to leave them as a road warrior. There are right. two or three networks that I have that, that have passwords and WPA, Stuff and that's all in there, and I like to leave that so I can get in there. So don't just willy nilly whack it. You you probably know that anyway, but yeah, but it's just worth mentioning. That. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. The only thing that gets me in my case is that if I go uh, again, if I if I go to the, the the airport menu and say other or do it manually, it works. Then it connects. So maybe it just uh, yeah, maybe there's a, a you know a resource that's taken up, and if I try to acquire it again, I'm gonna have to try that the next time. Um, you know, I can't connect to, uh, to the network in the, the house on the airport extreme. I'm going to have to try just typing it in manually and see if, see if that works before I go and bother to reboot the machine or reboot the router. Yeah. Okay, cool. All right. On to, uh, on to Brad. Brad says, I've been having an interesting issue after upgrading the snow leopard on my MacBook pro was hoping you could help enlighten me occasionally after booting up my Mac, say one in 10 times. I find that my menu bar fails to appear on the screen. Other times, the icons in the menu bar, such as spotlight and battery life, will appear, but there will be no menu bar border. Usually opening any application will spring the menu bar back onto the screen, but I've had a few occurrences where I had to reboot the machine to correct the problem. It's a puzzling issue, and I have no idea where to even begin. And uh, he sent us a picture of his desktop, which, of course, showed exactly what he just described. Uh all right, John, let's let's head down this path. I've got a couple of ideas and more so even just as we're kind of going through this again. Uh, but but let's let's go with the obvious stuff first. So uh, where I would start now, I have 
uh, my menu bar, at least on my MacBook Pro, is chock full of not only Apple um, things like the clock and spotlight, battery, airport, time machine, you know, mobile me. But I also have several third-party things like menu meters, um, uh, weather bug. I have that up there, iFi, a few other things. Uh, the only one I've noticed that's sometimes problematic is um, weather bug sometimes. Um, so when it starts up, it includes a little item that shows the temperature. And if you click on it, you can get more information. And I've gotten on occasion crash reports from that. And a lot of times when that happens, uh, I sometimes, though not always, will see corruption in my menu bar. Uh, so what I would suggest is uh, you may want to try disabling either some of the Apple or maybe some of the third party things that appear up in your menu bar and, uh, you know, and see if this problem goes away. Uh, you can, of course, look in the console, but sometimes uh, the console may get full. So another place you can look to see if anything up there is misbehaving is if you go to library, uh, slash library, slash logs, slash crash reporter is typically where these crash reports live. And uh, if you see anything in there that corresponds to something that you know is also in the menu bar, that that would be my first candidate for uh, you know uh, diagnosing this and perhaps removing that and see if the problem goes away. So... Uh, so that uh, those are my two cents. All right. I'm curious, John, um, have you seen crash reporter logs named after menu bar items before? Or are you just speculating that it might appear there? Well, I have seen one from Weatherbug. OK, but was it weather place itself? Weatherbug the app or Weatherbug? Oh, because Weatherbug is a background app. It's not really a menu bar item like the old days. I get it. OK, uh, yeah. So so there are two types of things that can appear as items in your menu bar. One is a background app that's running and puts itself in the menu bar. And and that I think you're right, John, would appear as a crash log item. The other thing is and these are I think support for them is deprecated in I think it was even deprecated in Leopard, but certainly in Snow Leopard, where you get a, a true menu bar item like Apple with their volume widget and all that other stuff. Um, and those are all running inside of system UI server. And I think also the, the third, the, you know, the, the apps that are running somehow hook into system UI server. So if you're seeing crashes from system UI server, uh, that would also indicate a menu bar issue. Um, the system UI server pref list or P list preference, uh, uh, it's a plist file, but but it's where the preferences are stored is in your home folder, library preferences, and then com.apple.systemuiserver.plist. Again, you've got to open this up with a plist editor or or, uh, or text wrangler or BB editor, something that can that can see this file. And and in there you can you can edit and pull out uh, items that are going to appear. Or you if you think that there's if you suspect corruption, uh, you could just delete that file and reboot the machine and then system UI server will start and create a new preference file. So that would be another way to do it. But the interesting thing I noticed as we were reading this through this, John, is he says that it's not just the icons in the menu bar that don't appear, but it's the menu bar itself. And in fact, sometimes the icons appear, but not the menu bar. And really, that's not system UI server at all. That is the application or, or the the framework that the application calls upon to draw the menu bar. And when he said that he switches from, uh, you know, he switch he opens up an app and the menu bar appears and then everything's okay. That almost leads me to think that there's something wrong with the finder because the finder would be the first app to load and it would be the thing to initially draw a menu bar on the screen. But of course, when you switch to other apps, you're using menu bar from those apps instead. So I I wonder if trashing the finder's preferences here would be the uh, would would be a, 
a place to start because it, you know, if the icons are appearing, but there's no menu bar behind them uh, to me that, you know, that's, 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 that's a, that's a different issue. It's interesting. I, I, uh, I'm not, I don't, there's no magic answer here, but I, I think perhaps trashing the finder prefs and rebooting Mm -hmm. and that's going to be in, uh, in let's see, home library preferences. And then, and then where John, do you know it off the top of your head? No. Okay, great. Perfect. I think it's com.apple.finder, uh, dot P list. And that's exactly what it is. Yeah. So trash that file and reboot. Yeah. I was looking somewhere else to, to close this out. Is that in addition, there is another folder within logs called diagnostic reports. And this actually, uh, Hmm. uh, kind of validates what you were saying, Dave, is that I see, uh, uh, reports in here. I see some system UI server ones. I also see some finder ones. I see battery health monitor. I see, Hardware growler. I see some things that are well. No, actually, none of these. Well, except for the system UI server stuff. Yep, could potentially be menu related. But uh, actually, that whole log folder. You know, uh, just read everything there. Yeah. Well, not everything. <laughs> well, you know, I've noticed this too. I've noticed in the console. Apparently, in the background, uh, every now and then, these get shipped off to Apple. Yeah, I've seen this in the log where it's like, oh, okay, I, I took the, and I think it eventually purges old ones there. Um, it should the uh, the weekly script, I think. Um, that that runs once a week should yeah. purge the older ones. Yeah, but I noticed that one one day using the I know the program both you and I love Dave. Um, little snitch. One day I noticed it's like, hey, this uh, you know crash reporter or something wants to go out on the network to Apple, and I'm like, it does. I'm like, well, okay, I, I guess that's all right. Huh. But I guess this is how Apple, uh, you know, secretly or not so secretly collects uh, information about why things on your Mac crash, and hopefully they can make it better. Cool. I, you know, I, I, I don't love a uh, little snitch at all, but you know, you know what? I, know I you despise it. I, I do. I, do. Well, I, I just find that it, it, uh, mm. it trains most people to ignore yes. and dismiss warning messages. And that's, that's my, that's my big concern with it. I know. But, I just found it useful to, to even know that this was happening because otherwise, <laughs> unless I poured through the console, I would never know that the OS was, uh, was doing this on my behalf. Right. But what I do love is the fact that, um, we have a, a spot. Our first sponsor of the show here uh, is makes our job very easy because it's a product that I absolutely love to use. And that is audio engine with their a two desktop speakers. These are self-powered uh, two speakers or two enclosures with each two speakers in them. So four total speakers, a, a tweeter and a woofer in each one. Uh, they're small in that they're, you know, maybe uh, four inches tall. They sit nicely on the desk. There's a cable that runs between them that's plenty long, so you can spread them out to get a nice stereo field. They plug directly into your Mac's audio, audio output port, uh, and then they've they've got uh, a AC plug that goes into the wall to power the amplifier that's inside them. And the sound that they deliver, these speakers were engineered to deliver audio coming from a computer, and it is such a full sound. We use them over in the house, and I've got... Uh, it fills our our study and our kitchen really really nicely. They've got a nice low end, uh, even though they're a very small speaker. They're they're low end. They've got a base port on them that uh, obviously has been carefully tuned. And uh, for 199 bucks, you can get them in either white or black. Uh, but here's the here's the the best part is using coupon code MGG10 T E N. So MGG T E N all caps. You save 10%. So you can get them for about 180 bucks. Uh, they do have a, what they call a, a free audition, which is uh, you get them home and for 30 days you can test them out. And if you don't like them, 
they'll refund your entire purchase price when you send them back. Uh, so these are the Audio Engine A2s from AudioEngineUSA.com. If you're in the market for speakers, uh, or even if you, you're the kind of person who uses your built-in speakers to your iMac to listen to music, consider, you know, it's a relatively uh, inexpensive upgrade and your, uh, your ears will thank you. So AudioEngineUSA.com. Now we're moving on to another question that, that actually sparked a very interesting discussion in our pre-show that, uh, that we, that we kind of put on hold to pick up here. Thomas, I think it's a different Thomas, but Thomas writes, uh, I was reading at Apple and looking at the specs on the iPad, it seems like you can't use this on an airplane because it says it has to operate at an altitude uh, of 10,000 feet or less. And Thomas, you are right in that the specs say the maximum operating altitude is 10,000 feet. However, if you go to the page for the MacBook Pro or the page for the iPhone or the iPod or anything else, it says exactly the same thing. So, uh, John, you and I both understand this enough to uh, to talk reasonably intelligently about it. But the good news is we have our own resident <laughs> altitude expert here in Pilot Pete. Uh, so the the obvious first question here, Pete, that I, that I think you're going to help us answer is. I'm pretty sure what they're talking about here is effective altitude in terms of air pressure and not just some random, de- you know, determinate for how high up you are from sea level. I, I'd agree with that. And, and in addition, I, I don't think they're just doing it to keep the pilots from using the <laughs> cockpit and going past their destination. Now, I, I make light of that, uh, but uh, I, I don't. I'll stay away from that. Okay, yeah, I have my yeah. own opinions on that, but that that's a whole nother show in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, no, it, and the thing to remember is uh, it probably would be deleterious to use the LCD display above 10,000 feet. Knowing what little I know about how the LCD works. That being said, when you're uh, in an air, aircraft, a pressurized modern jetliner, um, it is going to be pressurized on average at about eight and a half PSI differential so when when you what's say a, pressure, what's that mean yeah but yeah p- pounds per square inch okay and and when i'm talking about that it, people think of the airplane is pressurized it goes below sea level or something it, it doesn't um you, your aircraft internal altitude is about eight and a half pounds per square inch more pressure inside than outside the cabin ah. what does that translate to well at forty three thousand feet eight and a half psi translates to roughly eight thousand feet internal it, so you're at eight thousand feet as if you were on a mountain it's as though you climbed feet. up a mountain to eight thousand right. feet exactly you have the same uh amount of pressure in the air in the airplane that you would have outside right and okay. the reason we have that pressure is so that the oxygen that touches your lungs is actually forced across the membrane and, and into the blood cell and then carried throughout keep, your body. Keep so you conscious. Exactly, keeps you alive, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Getting uh, uh, air onto the blood that goes into the brain is highly important. Uh, I imagine so. it, through your pilot training, they make they impress that upon you. Uh, they do. Uh, that. Uh, what was that movie? Um, uh, the Richard Gere one. Uh, can't believe officer and a gentleman yeah where they show that and they're in the pressure chamber what they're doing is that they're in there they're not pressurizing it they're sucking the air out of that thing uh, and uh, so they're they're bringing them up in altitude and then they have to take their oxygen mask off and they they do you play patty cake you count cards you do all those kinds of things and you quickly see the symptoms of hypoxia 
and, and no, so that you know what it feels like when you start losing coordination and, and your ability to think goes into slow motion and everything around you literally time shifts on, wow. as far as your brain is concerned. Um, it, it gets ugly early and that, that's why they do it so that you have that symptom and can get on oxygen and, and save your own life because, sure. you know, particularly uh, in the military, you get a lot of single seat aircraft. And you need to recognize there's no one else there looking out for you. Is right, right, right. Yeah. Okay, so but, so the, it, it's but, so we are going up when, whenever we take our devices. Uh, it, this is something that people should be aware of. Uh, but in theory, Apple has thought about this long before the, the product right. ever makes it to market, and they realize that you know that they need to de- design their devices to be used in commercial aircraft at reasonable cruising altitudes exactly and ten thousand feet gives you plenty of margin Uh, for the most part uh, there i I forget exactly what the number is somewhere around fourteen thousand feet cabin altitude if the pilot uh doesn't reach up and hit the switch the the oxygen masks will drop down automatically okay so if you get a rapid they talk about the mask coming down if you get a rapid decompression and the altitude in the aircraft goes up they don't even have to reach the switch there's a pressure sensor in there that'll throw the switch automatically and, and let the oxygen mask come down got it so um, okay. but so, you will never so, see as a passenger assuming everything's normal you will almost never see anything probably above 6500 maybe 7000 feet pressure altitude if you got one of those little geeky watches with the altimeter on it okay all right that was and that was my question was yeah what what's a reasonable because it's 43000 feet that's real high that's above what most airliners do the, there are a few for that most will planes get up that it starts there, but, to approach that that what is that, what's that called the trying um, the, the, there's the you're the, L over D max, your ability, your the air is getting too thin up there for the engines for the, and the and the wings to right. operate. Yeah, properly. there's a there's a so, name for that, yeah. right? It's a geeky name. It's it's like the the death pyramid or the yeah. death triangle or something mm-hmm. like that. Well, we had the death equation in the Harrier, but that was oh, something different. different. Yeah, <laughs> that that has to do with your airspeed and your yaw and your angle of attack. Uh, any, but anyway, but yeah, it <laughs> does. It has to do with your angle of attack. I mean, the the wing has to create a higher angle through the air to develop more lift, and the higher you right. get, the thinner the air. The harder it's, it has to at work, some point, and then the you start re- reaching Mach maximum, and you start getting, mo- you know, the airplane just can't go any faster without starting to rip things off of it, and it, 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 it's right. bad. Bad things happen. Right, right. So you stay away from that regime. Say, so John, you, you, have, you have a question here for Pete? Well, one question here, Pete. Now, let, let me speculate here, because I see in the specs here, they also say maximum shipping altitude, 35,000 feet. Let, let, let me take a wild guess here, because based on what I know, most commercial large airliners uh, usually that's about as high as they go or maybe a little less than or at least when they announce it it's 30 something thousand feet are cargo holds pressurized or, yes. or not as absolutely they no, are. The cargo, yeah the fedex and ups and and uh, dhl uh, all of those airplanes are flying it, the only thing different is that they've taken the seats of the overhead out and they've put roller mat down in order okay. in order to expedite onload and offload but the entire aircraft is completely pressurized uh, so as why if it was is shipping airline. altitude Spect at thirty five thousand. Uh, I don't hmm. know. That's interesting. Hmm. That that's okay. an interesting just, just question. But yeah, okay. Maybe, I didn't know they're pressurized. Well, yeah, I guess what they're st- saying there. You know, if you're off, you know, don't operate it. If you know, if you have rapid uh, decompression, right. don't operate your device. But uh, <laughs> um, cool. Yeah, I can't imagine why it would be. Uh, no, even our lower bellies are all pressurized. Okay. You know, that's why you can ship dogs and cats and stuff down right. there. Right. So or people even. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Now, what's interesting, John, is I did run into an issue with this where I had um, I think it was my fifth generation iPod and it worked fine. Uh, And then I went up in the air 
and I look at the thing and it's got the dead hard drive icon on it. And I thought, oh man, you know, and I was going on vacation. It was terrible. It's like, you know, I really wanted to use this thing while I was on vacation and now it just doesn't work. This sucks. And so, you know, whatever I put it in a bag and, and then we got to wherever we were going and I got, yeah, let me take a look at this. I didn't have a laptop with me, so I couldn't even restore to it. You know, it was one of those things. I look at it and it worked fine. I thought, oh, thank goodness. And then on the way back, the same thing happened in the air. Dead hard drive icon. All right, what's going on? And uh, so what I realized was that the drive in uh, in the iPod was not up to spec and did not function at whatever the effective altitude was. Uh, you know, when I was up at 30,000 feet and so I called Apple and they said it was still in warranty and they said, sure, no problem. And uh, I sent it in and, and they, you know, fixed it and sent it back. And, uh, and then I get on a plane and uh, a couple months later and I go up and sure enough, it doesn't work again. It's like, you know, so I, I, I knew this time what was going on. And so I called Apple when I got home. And I said, listen, you know, and they're like, oh, yeah, well, we tested it here. You know, they looked in the notes. We tested it here and uh, we found that the drive worked fine. So we sent it back to you. So we sent it oh, back to you. Man. And and here was the kicker. It had been I was now out of warranty and it had been, you know, slightly more than 90 days since the last repair. So they're like, oh, sorry, you're out of the repair window. And I said, wait a minute. You know, I, I can't test the thing unless I'm in an airplane and you people, you know, the symptoms are exactly the same. So they, they you know, they did get that waived and they said, well, we're just going to replace the drive, even though we can't confirm like, no, you can confirm. You just have to get your butt on a plane <laughs> with your screws and your screwdrivers and your test gear. And uh, you can fix this thing. And you know what? Why don't you fly the plane straight back to me? You can hand deliver it uh, yourself. Once I guess it's they fixed. don't offer that troubleshooting service at altitude. <laughs> So, uh, for a so, pressure chamber. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So it, you know, it is possible that this can happen. And if you see any weird symptoms with your with your devices, be it your computer or your iPod or anything, while you're on a plane, uh, know that there could be some part of that device that's not up to spec. And most often, it's going to be the hard drive because that is the 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 moving part uh, of of choice in most of these devices. But uh, but it's definitely, and we saw it with one of I think with, with Lisa's. With one of her iPods, too, I think we saw the same thing. So it's um, it's de definitely, you know, worth being aware of that, that, uh, you know, pressure can render different components useless in different ways. So or lack of pressure or too much pressure. But hopefully you yeah. don't experience too much pressure. Interesting. Other, so that's why everybody needs an crazy. SSD because, uh, yeah, because <laughs> I've seen that on a lot of drives is no, there's like a little membrane that I guess is used to balance the pressure between the inside and the outside of the drive. And of course, SSDs, right. I don't believe... Uh, well, unless they're under extreme pressure, right. they're going to suffer from that thing. So. Right, right, right. Anyways. All right. Um, I want to, yeah, let's do, let's do Eric next. This was, uh, this was very interesting what, what we have going on here. It's a good question. Eric says, I was wondering if you knew of an app to do the following. I'm currently looking to buy a phone on Craigslist. What I would like is an app that could search through the listings and send me email alerts when an ad meets my criteria, i.e., price, description, location, etc. I know Craigslist can generate an RSS feed of your search. So if there is no standalone app to search Craigslist, then there must be an app that can just send me email alerts every time a new post comes up in the RSS feed. Uh, so with that, uh, there's a couple of different options here. The, you know, my, my first instinct was, okay, yeah, RSS is the way to go. Uh, now we just need to find something. And my, my gut said, well, growl is real good at this. 
And you can link NetNewsWire and Growl, NetNewsWire being an RSS reader application, and Growl, and have that work. The other thing you can do is uh, Google will do Google alerts based on, I think, based on an RSS feed. And, and there was a, uh, you know, I didn't put the link here in the show notes. I'm going to have to find it again. There, there was a, a little bit of a hack of, of syncing up a Google Reader folder with uh, a Google Alerts thing and, and having an email generated. But we'll, we'll find that. I'll find that uh, URL, John, and I'll, I'll give it to you for the, uh, for the show notes. But, uh, but I think the Net Newswire growl thing would be best, except it requires your computer to be on and scouring mm-hmm. this, uh, you know, scouring this. So if you want an email generated when you're away from your computer, uh, you're going to need to use and, and your computer's off and you're going to need to find a, a third party service. And I think I think there's a, you know, a kind of a, a workaround way to do it with with uh, with Google RSS reader. So and then, John, you found something else or you had another um, idea. Well, just another idea, and it seemed to work. I don't, I don't think it's quite what he's looking for, but, um, you know, since I got this love fest going on with Mail, um, I noticed that when you install Mail, it defaults to uh, the uh, Apple prop- uh, Apple RSS information feed. Well, you could say it's propaganda. And, and that gets updated every now and then. So so Mail, Apple Mail, definitely has the capability to consume RSS feeds. And then I thought, well, you know, they also got these, this thing called smart mailboxes, which I haven't looked at a lot yet. But but this, uh, I think, is credit to the ease of use, at least uh, I was able to figure it out. So I'm like, you know, let me make a smart mailbox. And so I made a smart mailbox. And the first condition, I'm like, okay, well, let's say message type is RSS article. And then I had another condition. And I said message contains, and in this case, I put iPad. Well, I finished that, created the smart mailbox, and voila, the smart mailbox appeared. And it had exactly one message, which was the message uh, from Apple PR that was talking about the iPad. Ah. So consider a smart mailbox. I mean, it doesn't, it's not necessarily an email, but it does show up in a smart folder in mail app. So that's true work for you. Yeah, that's right. If the goal is to have it show up in mail app, uh, then you're good to go. And you know, here's the other thing you could use, uh, um, a, an app like Docstar, which is a mail add on D O C K S T A R. And what it lets you do is have, have and customize the badges that appear on the mail dock icon, as well as putting badges in your menu bar, showing the number of unread messages in whatever folder or folders you want. And you can do five of them. And if you have all five lit up at once, it makes a star. And I think that's why they call it dock star, but you could certainly, you know, say, okay, I'm going to attach a star or, or a dock, you know, a dock badge to that, smart mailbox and now you could have a big you know yellow icon show up you can customize the color and the location and the size and all that stuff so you know mail could badge itself in a in a very apparent way or you can have it badge the uh, the menu bar or both uh, in a very apparent way so that that's uh you know if if you're if you're looking to have that show up when you're at your computer that that's the workaround i like that that's good cool all right uh time for ivan here huh john we we we, yep. we talked in the last show. We were, we were talking about various um, time machine issues, and in passing, uh, I made the comment that you could not use without without a hack. You could not use AirDisc, uh, that being a disc express attached to an Airport Extreme, as a time machine destination. And here's what Ivan says: Hey, John and Dave, this is Ivan from West Palm Beach, Florida. 
Um, I think it's episode 250. You guys are talking about Airport Extreme backing up to an air disk, uh, external hard drive. Um, I don't have my Airport Extreme hacked in any way or um, Samba hacked in any which way. And I have my um, Snow Leopard server backing up via Time Machine to an Airport Extreme with an uh, external hard drive. And it's been working just fine and I have no hacks whatsoever. Um, not sure if you guys have tried this recently, but it works for me. All right, you can cut me off. Thanks. Cool. Okay. Um, so this is interesting. The, the hack, uh, it is possible. I, I, I want to state out, out of the gate here. I do not use an air disc hanging off of an airport extreme as my time machine backup. So, uh, I, I, I only live on that, which I, which I read elsewhere. Um, in, in at least in terms of this, but it is possible that 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 now works. However, uh, this the hack is not done to the airport extreme. The hack is done to the Mac in question, and it and it really is a hack that says it's just it's it's one of those you know we talked about it on on I think our most recent premium show, John. The whole concept of typing uh, one line default settings into the terminal, and it's one of those. It's a default setting that essentially says, "Go ahead and let Time Machine use unsupported disks." Uh, and then this magically appears, right? right? So, um, and, and I actually asked on Twitter this morning to see if, if there was perhaps some update that I didn't know about, uh, you know, that we hadn't heard about or whatever, John, that, that made this change, uh, in the OS, uh, to, to do that. But, but I, I haven't really gotten any answers, although some people have said, yeah, it works fine. And I don't think I have it hacked, but it's hard to remember, you know. So, Pete, now you have an Airport Extreme at your house. I do, and I have an air disc hanging off it, and okay. I use that as my as my backup for my time machine okay. for my MacBook Pro, which I use the terminal command to use on supported drives. Okay. Now, do you have, just to be sure, do you have the latest version of the firmware on your Airport Extreme as well? 99% sure. As of a week and a half ago, I did. Okay. Because Actually, I, I'm I, certain I, you did because yeah, when we launched Airport Utility, it would have told us you didn't. Oh, that's right. Yeah, it comes up. That's <laughs> yeah. right. So, but yeah. about a week and a half ago, I was putzing with that, and okay. I, and I checked to make sure it was updated, and it was. So, um, and that being said, now I also have the iMac that uh, my wife is running, and we just tried to. I've never set up Time Machine. We just tried to set it up, and it does not recognize that drive, and it's sitting on the network. So okay, and and we were in there. In fact, I'm. Technically, I'm still on it. I'm still VPNed into my home network right now. That's good. Thing. And uh, uh, it can't. Uh, it just isn't recognizing the drive. It doesn't there. show up. So okay. All right. So the one thing is that, uh, as you notice, Pete, while while Ivan's comment was playing, is that Ivan's using Snow Leopard server, and it's possible, being that this is a hack that you make to the OS, it's possible that Snow Leopard server has a different level of tolerance for what it's willing to uh, to see as a time machine drive. If anybody has has any more details on this, be sure to let us know and uh, and we'll be happy to uh, to share them here and aggregate things. But as far as I know, it is still not supported by Apple. So that being said, maybe you could put that hack in the uh, show notes again. That's a nice one. Oh, that's a good. Yeah, <laughs> thanks, Pete. <laughs> that's, that's a good idea. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because I couldn't find it right now if I wanted to, and I sure would like to. <laughs> so I can get that iMac going. <laughs> uh, okay, and uh, what am I doing here? I'm trying to find all sorts of various different things. Uh, I think it's time for a second sponsor, John. And that sponsor is GoToAssist. 
Express. The idea is simple. Uh, Pete, you're it's in fact, it's very interesting. You are talking about how you had to connect to your home machine. Now, right. in order to connect to you've got screen sharing turned on right. on your home machine. In order to do that, you either would have had to use back to my Mac, which we know is very sort of flaky. And, yeah. yeah. Or and you have to have an Apple router for that. Otherwise, it doesn't work. Or uh, you had to do what you did, which is you already have a VPN server set up at home. You VPN in. And then we had to use Apple's special way of waking up that computer. And then now, boom, we're good to go. Uh, go to assist makes this process much, much simpler. What it does is you go into your go to assist account as the consultant or the the controller and you generate a new support session and then you either give that you it gives you a URL you can either email that URL automatically to the person that uh, that you're going to help or uh, you take it yourself and you know paste it to them in an instant message session or e even if you had to read it to them over the phone they open it up in their browser uh, they're prompted through a couple of things to authorize you and then you're good to go uh, and you it lets them in to the uh, into into the it lets you in to their computer and now you can control things but the person on the other end can see exactly what you're doing you can even uh you know talk to them and and show them things you could use it as training uh or you can just simply fix things and the person on the other end has a very comfortable big red button uh, that they can push if for whatever reason they want the session to end uh, if you visit go to assist.com slash gab that is go to assist.com slash gab. You get your first 30 days free uh, of go to assist express from Citrix. So go ahead and check that out. Go to assist.com slash gab. And, uh, and that's that. And John, uh, John and Pete, I do want to uh, revisit uh, our, our previous topic because I was trying to rack my brain for that term as you're getting too high in altitude and not enough speed to keep the plane going. That's it. Embarrassed me publicly here, Dave. <laughs> it is. It is. Uh, well, I, I couldn't remember it. So as you guys were talking, I texted my brother, uh, who uh, is not a pilot, but but I think would happily play one on TV if if given the chance. And uh, and and I knew he would know the answer, and he did. It's called the coffin corner. Had you ever heard that phrase I, before? I haven't. Okay. No. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. So but. it's as you're as you've got too much altitude uh, to hold. To hold the altitude, you know, your your lift and your and your thrust are such that right. you're going down. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, and, and what we have on the MD11, uh, we have a we have a max Mach speed, and mm -hmm. it's a it's a red line, and it, it that's a function of uh, altitude and temperature and all sure. that sort of thing. Yep. And how much uh, Mach the airplane? It's obviously Mach limited to right. to the actual structural Mach limit. And then underneath, as you go up higher, you have a bottom foot coming riding up the tape going, right. this is your minimum speed. If you go any slower than this, you're going to fall out of the sky. That's... And those two feet start to approach each other the higher you get. And if you get them closer and about 40 knots apart, you're living on the ragged edge up there. So. <laughs> the, the funny thing is, and the reason this came into being was, um, I, I know we're just talking about asides here, but the very first time I had GoGo in-flight wireless, I got on uh, Skype with my brother. Now, this was before they had... Policy-wise, limited uh, the the ability to do that. Of course, there's no way to technically keep Skype from working because it just works, right, John? As we found, hopefully, mm -hmm. are you still there? <laughs> Is it still working for you, John? Absolutely, Skype works. Okay, <laughs> uh, and and so apparently he had been researching this particular topic uh, all week because he obsesses about you know aviation, 
And uh, and so he asked me, he said, oh, you know, what flight are you on? And so I said, well, I told him and, and he went on flight aware and found it. And he said, gosh, he's like, uh, what kind of plane is that? He said, is it whatever it was? It was a Virgin America flight. And I, I said, uh, yeah, yeah, that's right. And he said, gosh, he said, based on the math I'm doing here, you're getting really, really close to the coffin corner. And we were we were cooking, uh, but we were way up. I mean, we I think we were over 40,000 feet, which yeah. is rare. Yeah, for a commercial flight, rare. you know, I mean, it happens sometimes the right, you know, the right conditions send you up there. Yeah, and, the lighter you are, that sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, sometimes you're just too heavy to get up there. I got it. Okay. And, uh, but, but he, he was, he was very excited. He's like, oh, this is great. He says, you're really, really close. And uh, I had uh, another pilot who follows me on Twitter. I, I tweeted, I said, well, this is great. You know, I'm on a plane and learning about this thing called the, the coffin. What is it? What did I say it was? The coffin, the coffin corner. corner. Yeah. Nice. And, uh, and, uh, you know, this is not the right place to learn about it. And I sent out my flight aware thing and, and this other pilot said, yeah, well, you know, you're not as close as you might think. He said, but you are closer than most commercial airlines, uh, airliners get. So whatever. Yeah. Anyway, well, in closing, Dave, uh, I got to say you were speaking about playing a pilot. Now, I think uh, I, I think you guys would agree. If, if you could join me in a moment of silence for uh, who recently passed away, Peter Graves, a.k.a. Captain Over. <laughs> oh, did he? Yeah, yeah, that that's a great loss. It, whether you liked Airplane or, or Mission Impossible, I, I I think I liked him in both actually. But yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, two totally different characters too. Yeah, but I think almost yeah. every pilot I know really digs uh, Airplane. Oh, there's there's nothing funnier than walking into the crew room at, in the middle of the night and watching seventy five commercial pilots sitting around watching Airplane. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. All right, so it's time to uh, to move on to Mark, which is a very interesting question, I think, John. Are we ready to move on? <laughs> ready to wrangle yes. this one back under control? Hey, guys, this is Mark from Buffalo. I just had a technical... I- I'm going to stop here. It- it- Mark's audio clicks and pops are-, are Mark's and Mark's alone, so you will we will play through this with them, uh, at least to, a- to, the- to the point where we get his message through. Cool question regarding my SuperDrive and my MacBook Pro. Uh, what's happening is the um, the disk doesn't seem to be able to be read. So, um, you know, I can put in, like, uh, um, my new version of 2009 uh, iWork, and it'll spin, and you can hear it spinning in kind of a weird way, and then it'll kick out. And it happens with all disks. I have a Microsoft Word disk, and the same thing happened. And uh, so I took it into the Genius Bar, and um, they uh, basically hooked up a drive to it and booted from their drive, which had a, supposedly a clean operating system on it. And they threw in their, their own DVD. This was not a, not a DVD program, but a DVD movie. And the movie started up and worked fine. So the conclusion that they drew was that I needed to uh, make a clean boot of my operating system. So. I nuke and paved, as as you guys say, and uh, put a disc in as soon as I as soon as I nuked and paved. Now, interestingly, the install disc I believe worked fine, um, but after I uh, nuke and paved, I put a couple of the same discs in and had the same problem. Um, these discs are brand well. The iWork disc, at least, is brand new and not scratched up. The other disc is in pretty good condition and not scratched up. Um, so it doesn't appear that the clean install solved the problem. 
All right, no, we'll stop the uh, stop the comment there. I think we've got the the gist of the info, huh. John. One thing that comes to my mind now that I listen to this again: Why didn't they try that disc in his computer? I have no idea. It doesn't so, make any that, sense. That, that, to me, that would have been a nice way uh, to compare apples to apples. Okay, external drive reading a movie works fine. Internal drive reading a movie works fine or doesn't work fine. To me, that would have been a useful nugget. Well, that's what they did do. They booted well, I his don't, machine. Well, I, I think he booted from... Uh, I don't believe they booted he said they booted from... Mode or something? Yeah. I don't believe they booted from his drive on no. the DVD. No, they booted from one of their discs on the DVD, but then used his drive to play a movie. Which, okay, that's fine. But playing a movie is very different from playing... Uh, you know, from reading other data from that drive, I don't know. It's just, it seems weird to me. Okay, I don't know if there were enough data points here, but uh, my guess is going to be. I mean, especially since he installed the new OS, and, and you know, I always love living hardware since since I'm, I'm a software type of guy or like to be. Um, I I would guess that his internal drive is is kind of on on the blink. I I, I would agree uh, that, it, that it may be. I've had cases where I'm not able. Sometimes, and I, I I haven't tried this in a while, I don't burn a lot of DVDs, I think you burn more than I do, Dave, but I've had cases where even though my drive, and if you go to System Profiler, and you look at the drive, the drive will advertise the uh, CD and DVD formats that it should be able to handle, Right. and even when I've seen one listed, now it could be conflicting with Toast or whatever other sort of CD software or DVD software I have in the machine, but I've had cases where it absolutely said, I understand DVD dash or minus rw dual layer and i know that's what i put in there and it still spits it out saying i don't like your media go away yeah huh yeah i i don't know it's this is a weird one but i think i think you're right i think it's i think it's hardware it's got to be it's just weird that it was able to boot from his mac os 10 dvd and install an operating system from it but then, uh, you know, he couldn't read the, the question mark would be, can you read that DVD once you're booted from the hard drive? Otherwise, it, you know, gosh, I don't know. It, it, it's it's wacky. Uh, you well, know, it, this could be filthy. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Or the drive just filthy in it. I don't know. Yeah. Dust or something on the lens. I, I, haven't, I, I don't think I've used a lens cleaner in ages, but in theory, there could be, you know, gunk on the on the lens. Yeah. There. Or, the, or the actually, you know, I've seen this before. Um I think our buddy Paul Kent ran into this once. Um, sometimes the drive will complain that the laser's on the fritz, and if the if the laser is marginal or starting to fail, then you may be able to see this. And you know, I hate these. We both hate these problems, Dave. These you know things yeah. that are uh, you, you can't always reproduce. That sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. So you know, again, what I, would, I, f- I would, what I found so. when I was consulting John, you know, as you said that a warning light went off in my head. It, you know, and I I did consulting for probably a decade, if not longer, and. You know, so you learn some lessons along the way and, and, and a very general lesson that that I, I learned after many, many hours and, of course, many, many build hours uh, was that when you had something where it just wasn't making sense, you know, where you, like you, you do this one time and it works and then you do it another time and it doesn't work. And, it you know, it's very wacky and and unpredictable. As soon as it got to that point. My gut would roll over and it was it's hardware. It's always hardware when it's wacky like that software fault it all you want. But when you take the same path 
and it has to be the same path with all the variables being equal. But when you take the same path through it, it, it acts the same way every single time. Uh, now, sometimes it's not possible to control all the variables and you get into a situation where you, you don't, you can't, you know, you don't know, but, uh, but with hardware, you know, once you know you're controlling all the variables and it's just not being consistent, it, you know, it's hardware. And, uh, and, and that, I think that's our problem with, with Mark's question, John, is, as you said, we don't have enough data points to know, is it being consistent? Is it certain disks or is it only certain times or certain phases of the moon? You know, um, that, altitudes, that, altitude. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Power line noise. Uh, yeah. Right. But if power line noise or altitude is causing an issue on on this machine or any other machine, that's a hardware problem. Right. I mean, if it's not causing it on other machines nearby, then then that it's still a hardware problem. Again, it's just, you know, and like presumably it worked before this. <laughs> this, this is, is that a is a presumption. A new problem. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Is it a new problem? Yes. And that was always my other favorite question when I was consulting with people is, okay, what changed? And, you know, all the time, the answer was nothing. Nothing. Uh, right, <laughs> of course. <laughs> That's right, folks. Uh-huh. Your computer just magically installed this software and broke itself. Is that right? Well. Uh, oh, well, I did <laughs> add this and install that and Bonsai Buddy. and the, Right. Uh, but other than that, no, nothing's changed. No, nothing's changed. Other than all that spyware I, I installed the other night when I was surfing all those different websites. Uh, yeah. So, uh, so we don't have enough information, Mark, but based on what we do have, it, it sounds like hardware. Uh, and it certainly was a fun conversation to have. John, he could, he, well, well, he could, uh, I mean, I don't know if he wants to bring it to an Apple authorized service provider or maybe go back to the Apple store, but, um, I mean, I'm just thinking, you know, if, if he wants to go to, uh, I mean, there are certainly places that will sell him a new drive and, and also other, other people who would certainly be willing to install it. I, I don't know if he necessarily wants to go back to the Apple store to do that. but um, If it's under warranty, he does. Oh, oh, well, in that case. Okay. I, 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 I don't know sure if it's under warranty. Uh, yeah, I'm just speculating, but yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, you know, John, you've been using Mail app now for uh, a couple of weeks, and I love this because uh, it, it, you're you're finding things that only a new user that's using it freshly would look for. Whereas those of us that have been using it for a long time has sort of sort of to <laughs> have sort of learned to deal with its quirks or its issues. But as I always mm -hmm. say about mail, the best part about it is its extensibility, the ability to install or use add-ons. And we mentioned one in this show already with Docstar. uh, Add-ons that either add functionality or enhance the the built-in functionality, and that's really what makes Mail usable for me, and and kind of almost infinitely powerful, powerful, uh, because the power is left up to third-party developers. So, with that in mind, John, you you found a solution to a problem some of us might not even realize we had. Yes, um, this is something that you will run into. So, so, so here's my situation: I have an email address um, where I have. Uh, things from other emails forwarded to. Okay, so you have one like catch-all bucket that uh, that many other email addresses kind of funnel into. Is that right, John? That's correct. Okay, and and, and that's so a smart thing to do. It, yes. In these days, with with IMAP accounts, you want one mail account that is yours, but you might have many addresses: personal address, work address, uh, you know, other things that funnel into it. So I'm just trying to give this some context. Go ahead, John. Yes. So, um, and what happens is mail is certainly, so if I define the account for the, um, for the primary ISP, and I also include, as, as we talked about, you can comma separate the other email addresses that correspond to that one primary one. 
then mail is smart enough. So if it's if it's sent to, um, say for example, like in my case, John at MacBurnsObserver.com, that actually gets sent to another address. But what happens is mail is smart enough if I reply to it to show that the uh, my address to the person I'm replying to is John at MacObserver.com. That's wonderful. Here was the aggravating part that I found with mail. Uh, and this is where Eudora uh, was able to let me do this without uh, too much grief. Um, right. Um, mail, with its signature capability, is not smart enough to pick a signature based on the address that the mail appears to be coming from. So again, while it selects the correct address, so say somebody sends something to John at MacObserver.com, when I reply to that person, it shows them that it is coming from John at MacObserver.com, but it will not select my MacObserver signature. Okay, and just to be clear, where mail does auto-select signatures is if you have multiple accounts defined full email accounts and then you can assign default signatures to those accounts. But, but if you have multiple addresses inside one account, uh, you're absolutely right. You cannot have different signatures for each of those addresses. Correct. Okay. So what I found, and then to also uh, kind of give a little background on how you set up signatures in mail, there are two ways to do it. So, so there, when you go into the signature section, so you go into um, uh, mail, I think it's preferences, and then you get a whole bunch of things you can customize for mail. And all the way on the far right, or it should be most uh, next to rules, is signatures. And what you will see on the left side of your screen is a number of different categories. And here's a, and I want to give some background because this is how I solved the problem, but this is important to mention this. So one category is all signatures. Now, in this case, you could define a signature and not necessarily associate it with any particular account. Yeah, and that can be confusing in and of itself. Yes. In this case, it worked to my advantage. Because now also you can have, and then it will list, uh, so there's an all signatures category. Then there are other categories that correspond to your email accounts. Right. So, you know, I have one for my .Mac, one for my Gmail, one for, and one for the account um, that, uh, that, you know, is kind of this catch-all for for a number of my other emails. Got it. Um, What I did is I found something called Signature Profiler. We will certainly link to it because I actually corresponded with the author because some of the behavior in it wasn't exactly intuitive to me, but I eventually figured out how to get it to do what I want. So what this will do for you is when you run Signature Profiler and once you install it, it just appears in in the preferences. So it's very transparent in how this appears, which is really nice to me. But then what I did is I go into this and on the left side, it lists all of your email accounts. So it doesn't list the signature category, it just lists the email accounts. Okay. Email happens, accounts or email addresses? Uh, addr- well, accounts. Okay. Okay. With, which can have multiple addresses. Correct. Okay. Correct. Yep. So for example, the, the one that I have, that's a catch all it's listed here as you know what it is. And it says four email addresses. So I actually have it and three other addresses all come into it. Now, what happens is when you click on this using Signature Profiler, and and this is kind of the trick here. So step one, when I click on that address, it will show the four other, uh, that address and three others that correspond to that account. Yep. And then you can use Signature Profiler to say, okay, for this address, choose. And and, here it is, though. This is where it got a little complex. So it says, Choose a tail signature, and this is terminology that's specific to Signature Profiler, but it'll make sense in a moment. 
So what I did is basically associate each one of these, um, you know, with right. a signature. The thing is, the reason that I didn't include the signatures under the account in the mail signature thing is if they are, if they're already owned by an account, they will not appear in the menu. So that's caveat oh, number interesting. one. Interesting. Okay. They just have to be, because at first when I ran this, I'm like, where are the signatures? I know they exist. Right. So this is just the logic that I think he used to develop this, and that's fine. fine. Yeah. But then here was the second part. So then I wrote him and I said, well, I associated all these, but it's still not smart enough to bring up the signature. And here was the final step that I had to take. I went to signatures, went to all signatures, or I'm sorry, went to oh, the I account that um, I had all these other catch-alls with, and I defined something called tail signature. And then here's how he does what he does. And then within that, he actually allows you within certain parameters to include like little macros or little data definitions. So basically, I associated with that account tail signature and then in the actual signature text i put left curly bracket yeah, tail okay. dot signature right curly bracket what that is is assigned to signature profiler saying okay if you see this then take whatever's defined in this other part as a tail signature and replace that okay so what happens is when i reply as soon as i hit reply it it, it does it instantly logic. grabs this saying oh okay, I know which signature I'm going to use because signature profiler knows this and let me fill in that text for you. So it doesn't put curly bracket, tail dot signature, right curly sure. bracket. Sure. Puts in whatever I further define with signature profiler. So okay, I wrote the so guy, he sent me to his blog. It, it helped me understand the logic of why things were happening that way. But the end result is when I reply, not only is the correct uh, from address defined, but it picks the right signature. Oh, so this I is great. Now totally happy and of course i'm going to link to this gentleman it's donation where i'm going to throw him a few bucks just because this solved the one annoyance that i had is that occasionally i wouldn't notice that my signature was wrong and then people would get the mail and they'd be like well i see this in your signature and then i see this in your from now usually right. they just apply the from but but uh, i was just being ocd and it just bothered me yeah i want my signature to match the account well that now can that can especially matter between a work and a personal email or you know something like that where that that that's that's huge I, i've always wanted to do this but again you know you, you get complacent um you know i probably looked for a way to do this once many many moons ago and didn't find it and so now my workflow is just that i'm choosing signatures you know from the little drop down menu every time i create a message and it's fine but gee it sure would be nice to have it auto chosen i never bothered to check hey did somebody write something since you know seven years ago when i looked for this so that's great uh so my question is if once you've uh, created the message uh and then you choose it so like for creating a new message uh, if you change your from address in the drop down, does it then automatically change the signature to match? Um, like replying, I get that. But, you know, with with a new message, it's going to auto default to your main address. And uh, and then and then, you know, you can choose uh, another another address from the um, drop down. I'm going to try it right now, but okay. I believe I tried this and the answer is yes. So I'm going to click on my inbox for this catch all account. Yeah. I'm going to say new message. It defaults to the primary address of that. Okay. And it, the signature is called tail signature, as I mentioned, and yeah. it gets the, the one that I use. Okay. Now let me switch over to John Mac observer and voila, it just fills in the new one. Oh, so the answer brilliant. is yes. In real time, 
So, Dave, I think you got to get in on this action. Definitely. To any listeners who get frustrated with signatures not matching or just don't want to click on the pull down. So, uh, oh, no, that's great. Oh, that's awesome. Okay, cool. Thank you. That's great. That's uh, uh, I appreciate that. See, even uh, even we learn stuff from the show. Uh, we are getting to the point where we're, we're running out of time, but I did want to uh, offer a clarification. Our own John Martellero. Uh, hi, John. Uh, Listen to the last show. And he said, uh, you know, I thought I heard you guys mention that there are no instructions for moving a current time machine archive uh, to a larger drive. But there are. And I had just seen the knowledge base article, knowledge base article on that subject a few days before. And he points us to knowledge base HT 1427 with a section entitled how to transfer your backups from your current hard drive to a new hard drive. And then there's a section below that that says how to transfer your backups from an existing time capsule to a new one. Uh, And there is uh, you. It talks about doing it on the on the former where you're doing just a hard drive to a hard drive, it tells you to mount both drives and, and and it's worth going through the instructions here because there are a couple of nuances, like making sure you turn off time machine before you start mucking about with this stuff. Um, But uh, dragging the backups dot backup D folder from one hard drive to the other, and then reselecting the disc. Uh, And then with a time capsule, you're actually creating new disc images on the new time capsule and uh, and partitioning them in different ways and then and then dragging the uh, the data around that way. So uh, it's uh, it's a somewhat convoluted process, especially on the time capsule. But there is an Apple officially Apple sanctioned way of doing this, which is a good thing because uh, because it means that that they will they will likely support you uh, if you attempt this and have any problems. So thank you, Mr. Uh, Mr. Martellero. And John, I think uh, I think that's it. But you know what we have to do is we have to tell uh, we have to tell all our lovely listeners here how they can find us and how they can get in touch with us. Don't you think? I think so. And you know, the first way that I would try to do this, Dave, is uh, well, no, maybe not the first way, but one way is you could call us. You could pick up the phone or, or do a Skype call or whatever the heck you use for a phone these days. Like an iPhone. And you could call 206-666-GEEK. And Dave, that is 4335. That's right. Uh, you can also email us. Uh, there are two email addresses to use. One is feedback at macgeekgab.com. And yes, John, I said feedback at macgeekgab.com. I thought you said feedback at macgeekgab.com. But I didn't want to interrupt and, and say... Did you say feedback at MacGeekGab.com, Dave? Which is the first address, and of course the second address is premium. That's right, premium at MacGeekGab.com. For those of you that are subscribers to our premium edition, and we certainly appreciate that, uh, and that helps us kind of keep things separated out. Uh, And you mentioned Skype before, John, and you certainly could call the number with Skype, uh, but you can also simply call MacGeekGab on Skype, and that will get your voicemail to uh, exactly the same place, albeit with lesser quality, because Skype, uh, Skype's gateway, although I guess it'd be the same quality if you're going from Skype to Skype. It's uh, it, Skype's voicemail, Skype's um, outbound plain old telephone system gateway has horrible quality, uh, but uh, but it works, and obviously it's enough to uh, for us to 
share it on the show and for it to be intelligible for the listeners. So if that's if that's your preferred path, please feel free to take it. Uh, the best quality audio we get is from those of you that record on your Macs or on your iPhones and email the audio to us at feedback at MacGeekGab.com or premium at MacGeekGab.com. And that's it. We're uh, we're ready to uh, we're ready to head out of here, right, John? Are we? And, and I think I found this though. Um, the iPod Touch also supports recording, but you know, I am at a loss here, Dave. I would think of my big mountain of swag here that I would have um, at least one device that does audio input and uh, earphones because I think it's a special connector, at least on the iPod it Touch. Is. I think it's a four conductor connector. Yeah. I don't seem to have anything, so I will have to pick that up because yeah, at this point the the VU meter shows up, but it, it doesn't hear me. Maybe that'll come in the next touch. It'll have a built-in microphone. And, and Pete's saying a, a Bluetooth headset, the touch support Bluetooth? <gasps> oh. Does it support Thank Bluetooth? Thank you, Pete. There you go, um, man. Yeah. Mine does. Yeah, okay. mine has the Bluetooth huh? enabled. Look There's at that. I can use... Wow. See, having wow. me around is a good thing now and then. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have buried somewhere a Bluetooth uh, headset. All right. See, the I wonder tips, if I can marry my Mac to it. Hmm, you well, can well, marry duh. your Mac to a Bluetooth headset, and you can use it for Skype. I, I was using that for a while, and it's handy because I can walk around the office and have Skype calls. All right. So, uh, see, the tips just keep flowing. We can't help ourselves here, folks. This week in iPhone is the podcast that our friend, Mr. Michael Johnston, runs. Uh, he's the one that converts the show to AAC for us and for you. Cashfly hosting at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com provides all the bandwidth. The podcast marketplace includes the A2 desktop speakers from Audio Engine, as we mentioned. Yojimbo from Barebones Software. PDF pen uh, from Smile on my Mac. And also the new text expander 3 from Smile on my Mac. Notebook from Circus Ponies. And GoToAssist.com slash Gab uh, for GoToAssist Express from Citrix. The one thing we didn't go through, John, you got to remind me to talk about it in the next show is uh, I saw a movie, it was a documentary about Richard Garriott, a.k.a. Lord British, uh, the creator of all the Ultima Ultima, games. And uh, and it was one of the coolest movies I've ever seen. And so I I definitely want, it's a geeky enough thing that it makes perfect sense for us to uh, to talk about here. So I want to make sure we we talk about that in the next show. So remind me, it's on my list. I didn't even uh, even remember. So, but we're out of here now. Dude, I remember I stayed up for Days when I was a wee a wee geek, I would stay up for days, literally, with no sleep, playing Ultima. It was, uh, it was terrible. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was. It was great, wasn't it? And Wizardry. That that was the other one. Right. That's right. That was the competing product, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Just make sure if you're going to stay up for days and play games that you know you don't get caught. Made up.